This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Zuckert, Tales of the Brass Hedgehog, Hedgehog.net. Dear Enemy, by Jean Webster, Part 22. January 11th. Dear Judy, I hope my two cablegrams didn't give you too terrible a shock. I would have waited to let the first news come by letter, with a chance for details, but I was so afraid you might hear it in some indirect way. The whole thing is dreadful enough, but no lives were lost, and only one serious accident. We can't help shuddering at the thought of how much worse it might have been, with over a hundred sleeping children in this fire-trap of a building. That new fire-escape was absolutely useless. The wind was blowing toward it, and the flames simply enveloped it. We saved them all by the center stairs, but I'll begin at the beginning, and tell the whole story. It had rained all day Friday, thanks to a merciful providence, and the roofs were thoroughly soaked. Toward night it began to freeze, and the rain turned to sleet. By ten o'clock when I went to bed the wind was blowing a terrible gale from the northwest, and everything loose about the building was banging and rattling. About two o'clock I suddenly started wide awake, with a bright light in my eyes. I jumped out of bed and ran to the window. The carriage-house was a mass of flames, and a shower of sparks was sweeping over our eastern wing. I ran to the bathroom and leaned out of the window. I could see that the roof over the nursery was already blazing in half a dozen places. Well, my dear, my heart just simply didn't beat for as much as a minute. I thought of those seventeen babies up under that roof, and I couldn't swallow. I finally managed to get my shaking knees to work again, and I dashed back to the hall, grabbing my automobile coat as I ran. I drummed on Betsy's and Miss Matthews's and Miss Snaith's doors, just as Mr. Witherspoon, who had also been awakened by the light, came tumbling upstairs three steps at a time, struggling into an overcoat as he ran. "'Get all the children down to the dining-room. Babies first, I gasped. I'll turn in the alarm.' He dashed on up to the third floor while I ran to the telephone, and, oh, I thought I'd never get central. She was sound asleep. "'The John Greer home is burning. Turn in the fire alarm and rouse the village. Give me five oh five. I said. In one second I had the doctor. Maybe I wasn't glad to hear his cool, unexcited voice. "'We're on fire!' I cried. "'Come quick, and bring all the men you can. I'll be there in fifteen minutes. Fill the bathtubs with water and put in blankets.' And he hung up. I dashed back to the hall. Betsy was ringing our fire-bell, and Percy had already routed out his Indian tribes in dormitories B and C. Our first thought was not to stop the fire, but to get the children to a place of safety. We began in G and went from crib to crib, snatching a baby in a blanket, and rushing them to the door and handing them out to the Indians, who lugged them downstairs. Both G and F were full of smoke, and the children so dead asleep that we couldn't rouse them to a walking state. Many times during the next hour did I thank Providence and Percy Witherspoon for those vociferous fire-drills we have suffered weekly. The twenty-four oldest boys, under his direction, never lost their heads for a second. They divided into four tribes and sprang to their posts like little soldiers. Two tribes helped in the work of clearing the dormitories and keeping the terrified children in order. One tribe worked the hose from the cuvola tank until the firemen came, and the rest devoted themselves to salvage. They spread sheets on the floor, dumped the contents of lockers and bureau drawers into them, and bundled them down the stairs. All of the extra clothing were saved except those the children had actually been wearing the day before, and most of the staff's things. But clothes, bedding, everything belonging to G and F went. The rooms were too full of smoke to make it safe to enter after we had got out the last child. By the time the doctor arrived with Llewellyn and two neighbors he had picked up, we were marching the last dormitory down to the kitchen. 
the most remote corner from the fire. The poor chicks were mainly barefooted and wrapped in blankets. We told them to bring their clothes when we wakened them, but in their fright they thought only of getting out. By this time the halls were so full of smoke we could scarcely breathe. It looked as though the whole building would go, though the wind was blowing away from my west wing. Another automobile full of retainers from Knolltop came up almost immediately, and they all fell to fighting the fire. The regular fire department didn't come for ten minutes after that. You see, they have only horses, and we are three miles out, and the road's pretty bad. It was a dreadful night, cold and sleety, and such a wind blowing that you could scarcely stand up. The men climbed out on the roof and worked in their stocking feet to keep from slipping off. They beat out the sparks with wet blankets and chopped and squirted that tank full of water and behaved like heroes. The doctor, meanwhile, took charge of the children. Our first thought was to get them away to a place of safety, for if the whole building should go we couldn't march them out of doors into that awful wind with only their nightclothes and blankets for protection. By this time several more automobiles full of men had come, and we requisitioned the cars. Knolltop had providentially been opened for the weekend in order to entertain a house-party in honor of the old gentleman's sixty-seventh birthday. He was one of the first to arrive, and he put his entire place at our disposal. It was the nearest refuge, and we accepted it instantaneously. We bundled our twenty littlest tots into cars, and ran them down to the house. The guests, who were excitedly dressing in order to come to the fire, received the chicks, and tucked them away into their own beds. This pretty well filled up all the available house-room, but Mr. Rymer— Mr. Knolltop's family name, has just built a big new stucco barn with a garage hitched to it all nicely heated and ready for us. After the babies were disposed of in the house, those helpful guests got to work and fixed the barn to receive the next older kitties. They covered the floor with hay and spread blankets and carriage robes over it and bedded down thirty of the children in rows like little calves. Miss Matthews and a nurse went with them, administered hot milk all round, and within half an hour the tots were sleeping as peacefully as in their little cribs. But meanwhile we at the house were having sensations. The doctor's first question upon arrival had been, "'You've counted the children. You know they're all here.' "'We made certain that every dormitory was empty before we left it,' I replied. "'You see, they couldn't be counted in that confusion.' Twenty or so of the boys were still in the dormitories, working under Percy Witherspoon to save clothing and furniture, and the older girls were sorting over bushels of shoes and trying to fit them to little ones who were running about underfoot and wailing dismally. Well, after we had loaded and dispatched about seven carloads of children, the doctor suddenly called out, "'Where's Allegra?' There was a horrified silence. No one had seen her. And then Miss Snaith stood up and shrieked. Betsy took her by the shoulders and shook her into coherence. It seems that she had thought Allegra was coming down with a cough, and in order to get her out of the cold, had moved her crib from the fresh air nursery into the storeroom, and then forgotten it. Well, my dear, you know where the storeroom is. We simply stared at one another with white faces. By this time the whole east wing was gutted and the third floor stairs in flames. There didn't seem a chance that the child was still alive. The doctor was the first to move. He snatched up a wet blanket that was lying in a soppy pile on the floor of the hall and sprang for the stairs. We yelled to him to come back. It simply looked like suicide, but he kept on and disappeared into the smoke. I dashed outside and shouted to the fireman on the roof. The storeroom window was too little for a man to go through, and they hadn't opened it for fear of creating a draft. I can't describe what happened in the next agonizing ten minutes. The third-floor stairs fell in with a crash and a burst of flame about five seconds after the doctor passed over them. We had given him up for lost when a shout went up from the crowd on the lawn, and he appeared for an instant at one of those dormer windows in the attic, and called for the firemen to put up a ladder. 
Then he disappeared, and it seemed to us that they'd never get that ladder in place, but they finally did, and two men went up. The opening of the window had created a draft, and they were almost overpowered by the volume of smoke that burst out at the top. After an eternity, the doctor appeared again with a white bundle in his arms. He passed it to the men, and then he staggered back and dropped out of sight. I don't know what happened for the next few minutes. I turned away and shut my eyes. Somehow or other they got him out and halfway down the ladder, and then they let him slip. You see, he was unconscious, from all the smoke he'd swallowed, and the ladder was slippery with ice and terribly wobbly. Anyway, when I looked again he was lying in a heap on the ground, with the crowd all running and somebody yelling to give him air. They thought at first he was dead. But Dr. Metcalf from the village examined him, and said that his leg was broken, and two ribs, and that aside from that he seemed whole. He was still unconscious when they put him on two of the baby mattresses that had been thrown out of the windows, and laid him in the wagon that brought the ladders and started him home. And the rest of us, left behind, kept right on with the work as though nothing had happened. The queer thing about a calamity like this is that there is so much to be done on every side that you don't have a moment to think, and you don't get any of your values straightened out until afterwards. The doctor, without a moment's hesitation, had risked his life to save Allegra. It was the bravest thing I ever saw, and yet the whole business occupied only fifteen minutes out of that dreadful night. At the time it was just an incident. And he saved Allegra. She came out of that blanket with rumpled hair and a look of pleased surprise at the new game of peekaboo. She was smiling. The child's escape was little short of a miracle. The fire had started within three feet of her wall, but owing to the direction of the wind it had worked away from her. If Miss Snaith had believed a little more in fresh air, and had left the window open, the fire would have eaten back. But fortunately, Miss Snaith does not believe in fresh air, and no such thing happened. If Allegra had gone, I never should have forgiven myself for not letting the Bretlands take her, and I know that Sandy wouldn't. Despite all the loss, I can't be anything but happy when I think of the two horrible tragedies that have been averted. For seven minutes while the doctor was penned in that blazing third floor, I lived through the agony of believing them both gone, and I start awake at night, trembling with terror. But I'll try to tell you the rest. The firemen and the volunteers, particularly the chauffeur and the stablemen from Knolltop, worked all night in an absolute frenzy. Our newest negro cook, who is a heroine in her own right, went out and started the laundry fire, and made up a boilerful of coffee. It was her own idea. The non-combatants served it to the firemen when they relieved one another for a few minutes' rest, and it helped. We got the remainder of the children off to various hospitable homes, except the older boys, who worked all night as well as anyone. It was absolutely inspiring to see the way this entire township turned out and helped. People who haven't appeared to know that the asylum existed came in the middle of the night and put their whole houses at our disposal. They took the children in, gave them hot baths and hot soup, and tucked them into bed. And so far as I can make out, not one of my one hundred and seven chicks is any the worse for hopping about on drenched floors in their bare feet, not even the whooping-cough cases. It was broad daylight before the fire was sufficiently under control to let us know just what we had saved. I will report that my wing is entirely intact, though a little smoky, and the main corridor is pretty nearly all right up to the center staircase. After that, everything is charred and drenched. The east wing is a blackened, roofless shell. Your hated Ward F, dear Judy, is gone forever. I wish that you could obliterate it from your mind as absolutely as it is obliterated from the earth. Both in substance and in spirit, the old John Greer is done for. I must tell you something funny. I never saw so many funny things in my life as happened through that night. 
When everybody there was in extreme negligee, most of the men in pajamas and ulsters, and all of them without collars, the Honorable Cyrus Wyckoff put in a tardy appearance, arrayed as for an afternoon tea. He wore a pearl scarf-pin and white spats. But he really was extremely helpful. He put his entire house at our disposal, and I turned over to him Miss Snaith in a state of hysterics, and her nerves so fully occupied him that he didn't get in our way the whole night through. I can't write any more details now. I've never been so rushed in the whole of my life. I'll just assure you that there's no slightest reason for you to cut your trip short. Five trustees were on the spot early Saturday morning, and we are all working like mad to get affairs into some semblance of order. Our asylum at the present moment is scattered over the entire township, but don't be unduly anxious. We know where all the children are. None of them is permanently mislaid. I didn't know that perfect strangers could be so kind. My opinion of the human race has gone up. I haven't seen the doctor. They telegraphed to New York for a surgeon who set his leg. The break was pretty bad, and will take time. They don't think there are any internal injuries, though he is awfully battered up. As soon as we are allowed to see him, I will send more detailed particulars. I really must stop if I am to catch tomorrow's steamer. Good-bye. Don't worry. There are a dozen silver linings to this cloud that I'll write about tomorrow. Sally. Good heavens! Here comes an automobile with J. F. Bretland in it. End of part twenty-two.